Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 36 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And boy, oh boy, the news cycle keeps on a rolling. We still, of course, have the big issue of the day, it seems, as depicted by most of the mainstream media coverage. Afghanistan is still the big topic everyone's talking about. So for today's main topic, we're going to focus on a very different aspect, one that is uh, that has just as many implications as many wide-reaching implications. The scale of what we described two episodes ago as a war that by all accounts was a failure. There were some victories here and there, you know, killing bin Laden, but by all accounts, we spent 20 years on nothing. What exactly do we spend over the course of those 20 years? That is what we're going to talk about for the main topic. But before we do that, we're going to distribute an equal amount of white pills and black pills for the topics before we get to that point. Quite a few other major events of our cycle and things that we still should be talking about to this day have been buried. And one thing that has been buried is the latest development in the January 6th debacle. So the biggest thing to remember, of course, about January 6th, contrary to what the mainstream media will tell you, is that it was a peaceful protest. Trump supporters didn't murder anybody. They didn't bash in any uh, Capitol Police officers' heads with fire extinguishers. That did not happen. It was a peaceful protest. There were a few freak medical accidents outside the Capitol with mostly older marchers. That happens all the time at large political events, political rallies and marches and whatnot. There was only one person who was killed who was murdered on January 6th, and that was a Trump supporter. That was 35-year-old Ashley Babbitt, a veteran of the United States Air Force of 14 years from San Diego. She was shot and killed by a Capitol Police officer. For the longest time, this officer remained in hiding. He wouldn't show his face. He wouldn't show his name. And the Capitol Police and all the other bureaucracies, Department of Justice, they all covered up his name. They refused to release his name to the public, but they insisted he was a hero and had did nothing wrong. All their internal investigations said, you know, that, that, that meme, right? That classic meme. The government investigated the government and found that the government did nothing wrong. So he finally decided to come out so bravely in an interview with NBC's Lester Holt. His name is Michael Leroy Bird. He is a lieutenant with Capitol Police. A black man, you could see that much from the video. You could see his hands and could see that he was clearly an African-American man. And he absolutely doubled, tripled, and quadrupled down. He had zero apologies. And we're going to play just a few clips of this guy. Get ready for this. This is absolutely infuriating. This is the voice of the man who murdered Ashley Babbitt, Michael Bird. I followed my training and I spent countless years and preparing for such a moment. You ultimately hope that moment never occurs, but you prepare as best you can. I know that day I saved countless lives. I know members of Congress, as well as my fellow officers and staff were in jeopardy and in serious danger. And that's my job. Oh, I saved countless lives. Oh yeah, 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 right, right. Ashley Babbitt, 35 year old woman, was going to go on a murder spree. She was going to personally strangle Nancy Pelosi to death herself. Uh, clearly, yeah, obviously, obviously. So many people would have been murdered on January 6th by Ashley Babbitt if she had not been shot. Um, who, who, who did she attack prior to that, by the way? Did she attack anybody? Jacob, do we have any reports of Ashley Babbitt attacking anybody before she was shot? No, absolutely no one. None. And uh, she was found with a weapon on her body, wasn't she? She was found with a... a she, I think she had like a, a, some automatic... I think she had a machine gun, didn't she? She was carrying an Uzi, I believe. I heard it was an RPG. She, she had an RPG. She actually had like a... No, she actually had the detonator for a dirty bomb for a nuclear device on her. Yeah, so she, she obviously had to die. Here's another clip of this guy. Uh, and again, talk, he's talking to Lester Holt of NBC. When you fired, wh what could you see? Where were you aiming? 
you're taught to aim for center mass. Uh, the subject was sideways, and I could not see her full motion of her hands or anything. Um, so I guess her movement, you know, caused the uh, discharge to, to fall where it did. The discharge, her movement caused the discharge to fall where it did. So he pulled the trigger aiming at her. I guess he was aiming at her arm to wound her. And from the moment that the bullet left the gun from point blank range, she managed to move her arm and adjust her neck to where the bullet was going to land. So in that split second, she managed her movement. She changed her body in a split second from the moment the bullet left the gun to the moment it hit her. This doesn't, this guy, this doesn't even make any sense. Like, he doesn't make any logical sense. No, clearly he's a misogynist. He's victim blaming. He's victim blaming the woman. Oh, she, she had it coming. You see <laughs> yeah. that short skirt she was wearing? She clearly deserved a bullet to the shoulder. <laughs> but, but the discharge to fall where it did, like, this was a freak meteorite that came from outer space and struck her in that moment. Like, no, 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 no. You caused the discharge to land where it did by pulling the trigger. You fired that shot. You killed her. And you could see her. It was a window. It was a broken window through which he could see her. That's how he was able to aim at her. He could see. And her arms were reaching up because she was uh, reaching up to grab, like, the top of the door frame. You could see her. He took aim at her for a reason. So he's lying on that count as well. But just, again, the whole, like, oh, her actions caused that bullet to land where it did. Can you imagine for a second if Derek Chauvin's defense had been, oh, uh, George Floyd's movement caused my knee to fall onto his neck? <laughs> Like, they would excoriate him in the media for that. This is like that, uh, when that cruise ship tipped over in Italy or something and ran aground, like, way back in, in, like, the early 2010s, and the, uh, the captain abandoned ship. He was, like, one of the first people to get off the ship, and he was, uh, court-martialed and sent to prison for it. And his excuse literally was, oh, I tripped and fell into the lifeboat, and the lifeboat took me away. <laughs> That's literally what this is! This is just, you know, like you said, it's infuriating. It makes no professional sense from a law enforcement standpoint, and it makes no logical sense. But wait, there's even more. And what did you think this individual was doing at that at that moment? She was posing a threat to the United States House of Representatives. She was posing a threat. Once again, we need to reiterate, Ashley Babbitt was unarmed. And surrounded by, like, larger, like, buff dudes who were there, this shorter, you know, skinnier woman, 35 years old, younger than this guy, she was the threat. She was the threat. I'm not going to aim for any, and he shouldn't have been aiming for anybody. Again, as we pointed out when we first talked about this way back when, the video clearly shows that there were uh, other police officers right behind Ashley Babbitt, like uniformed police officers right behind her. He easily could have shot one of his fellow officers, but no, he just had to fire blindly into the crowd without even issuing a warning of any kind. No, no, nothing. But it gets even worse. So in this third and final clip we're going to play, pr prior to this, he pulls the excuse we all should have expected. Oh, I've faced death threats. I've faced racist insults since this because I'm a black man. So that's the claim leading up to this exchange with Holt. Given the nature of the threats that you describe, do you have any concern about showing your face and identifying yourself? Of course I do. Uh, that is a very vital point, And it's something that uh, is frightening. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know what? Good. You deserve to be living in hiding in fear that people are going to recognize you on the street for what you did. You're a murderer. You shot her and killed her, and now you're acting like the victim. Oh, I'm the victim for shooting her. It's just, ugh, I, 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 there's a lot more I want to say, but I'm going to control myself. But I think this guy deserves to be living in fear for the rest of his life. But then here's where it gets absolutely 
outrageous. This is the, the last thing I'm going to play with this guy because I can't stand looking at this guy. I can't stand listening to his voice. But you got to hear this part. I believe I showed the uh, utmost courage on January 6th, and it's time for me to do that now. <laughs> I showed the utmost courage by shooting an unarmed woman, and he then compares the action of shooting an unarmed woman to the same level of bravery as speaking out about it in an interview. Like, the delusions of this guy. This, to me, I know you heard that. That's probably the construction crew making those noises. Um... <clears throat> The absolute gall of this guy to commit murder, filmed on camera and everything, and then to be proud about it and say, yes, I saved countless lives. I showed the utmost courage. Go, go screw yourself, dude. You are a murderer. You deserve to be in hiding for the rest of your life. And to me, it just is so infuriating that, again, I mentioned Derek Chauvin earlier. How do we end up in a world where Derek Chauvin is a murderer and a white supremacist who gets convicted on all three counts even though some of the counts kind of conflict with each other you're not supposed to be convicted on all three it's supposed to be like one or the other and now he has to rot in jail for decades or ho however long the sentence is while this guy is a hero and is being hailed by the media and celebrated as such and on social media people celebrating oh yeah michael bird's my hero for killing a you, you see all the mainstream media articles declaring oh she ashley babbitt is a dead conspiracy theorist she got what was coming to her well, this is something that I'm going to touch on whenever we get to the main topic, but you can't really have an empire that's going to project power abroad when Americans would sooner kill kill each other than they would foreigners. I mean, let's face it, a lot of there's a lot of Democrats that would prefer to turn their guns on Republicans and vice versa than they would turn their guns on the Taliban. So when you're in a situation where you've got a cold civil war at home, you can't have you can't project power abroad until you take care of what's going on at home. And yeah, I've seen the seen a lot of the posts there. People are very glad that a Trump supporter got killed. Uh, they wouldn't be happy if one of the feminists who marched on the Capitol and occupied the Capitol had been shot by a Capitol police officer. Although, you know, they're not when they were during the Kavanaugh protests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. during the Kavanaugh protest protests. But they're perfectly happy if that bird killed Ashley Babbitt because, well, she's a Trump supporter. She deserved, you know, she deserved to die. She was uh, she was staging an insurrection. Exactly. And once again, I, I need to reiterate this whole episode just proves that if, if once again, it's really awfully convenient for the left to now suddenly support law enforcement. When it comes to January 6th, they sound like the most pro-police party ever, but then they'll turn around and say defund the police. And also on the same note as kind of the Civil War, Cold Civil War you mentioned, you can tell, especially in the era of Black Lives Matter, you can tell just by watching this guy, looking at his body language, the look in his eyes and the tone in his voice, you, those soulless black eyes just lifeless eyes like a doll's eyes it's in the era of black lives matter this pos this pos is so satisfied with himself that as a black man he got to shoot and kill an unarmed white trump supporter and gets all the praise that he wants they see this as like a reversal of how the tables have turned that you know now now we're the ones who get to use deadly force but they get away with it and i mean to be fair if he was any other race it wouldn't matter at the end of the day it's still a dead trump supporter he would still be hailed as a hero if it was white if he was hispanic but especially him being black you can tell this just works so this is one of their fantasies and it works so well with the narrative they want to create and at the end of the day not only is he a hero he still has his job he's on paid leave and he gets to keep his job and keep getting paid and ultimately keep his pension. And that's all he really cares about. But this is just, it's infuriating, it's disgusting, and I would like to say that there's better news on the horizon as far as January 6th is concerned, but I think that if this is any indication, it's just going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Well, you mentioned that his race wouldn't matter. You know, they would celebrate a dead Trump supporter regardless, but 
His race does matter in that uh, I, I firmly believe that if he was a white officer, Ashley Babbitt would still be alive. And the reason why I say this is because if you remember back in January and February, he was identified. Bloggers, right-wing bloggers, identified Michael Byrd as the shooter of Ashley Babbitt. The Capitol Police came out and lied and said that he wasn't the shooter. They just they blatantly lied, said, no, he is not the shooter. These are These are false reports. And at the time, people were looking up his Facebook profile, and some of the comments he was making was just blatantly anti-Trump anti-Trump supporters. And I've read one of the exchanges that he made with, apparently, I guess, one of his family members. But as he was preparing for the the January 6th protest, he was basically, you know, acting like he was he was going to his death. Like he was had the way he was posting is like, I'm, I'm going to the front lines, you know, keep me in your thoughts. I'm, we're going to protect the Capitol and stuff like that. And one of his I feel family members or friends messaged him and said, we're not going to we're not going to something to the nature of we're not going to fall victims like our ancestors did. And he said, oh, you're right about that. And so you got to think about the mentality here to play devil's advocate. His defense that he was that he was getting multiple signals over his uh, over the radio about officers down, about people breaking windows, breaking into the Capitol and what he had been groomed to believe was that Trump supporters are full of white supremacists, that you had a bunch of white supremacists, basically modern Ku Klux Klans that were charging the Capitol. And in his mind, they're here to kill every single congressperson, and they're going to kill every single black person they can get their hands on. Well, and according to AOC, they were also going to rape her. You know, she, she actually said in an interview the other day that they were going to rape her before they killed her. Yeah, and know, we, like, we discussed at the time whether or not whenever she said that, whether she was lying or whether she actually believed that. I don't think I, I'm tend to believe that she believed that I tend to believe that Byrd legitimately believed that his life and the lives of all the Congress people was in danger based on the propaganda that they had been fed. And this is the danger when you have a news media that feeds a partisan narrative and uses hate and fear to spread that partisan narrative. I remember shortly after Joe Biden came out and accused the Proud Boys of being racist in the debate with Donald Trump. Donald Trump had no clue who the Proud Boys were, never even heard of him, he had no clue what he was talking about. And I remember shortly after that, I was – this was 7th Street Northwest. There's a bunch of projects. I was, I was biking down the street, and I overheard some young black guys talking about, hey, Obama should have taken care of these white supremacists when he was in office. This is on Obama's fault. They were talking about the Proud Boys. Well, the reason why they thought that was because of Joe Biden, because the Democrats spread the false narrative that the Proud Boys are basically the modern, in, in modern incarnation of the Ku Klux Klan. You've got black officers in the Capitol, black officers on the Metropolitan Police Force in D.C. who believe that. And this is why uh, this is why the naivete of Trump supporters is so dangerous. When they charged the Capitol, they didn't have in mind, hey, there's black police officers on the police force who believe that I am a white supremacist and that I would hang them if given the opportunity. If I get arrested, there's going to be black jailers at the D.C. jail who are going to be, beat me while I'm in prison, yeah, which because, has been happening because they believe that I am a legitimate white supremacist who would kill every single black person in America if I could get away with it. They didn't they didn't know that because the Republican Party didn't do its job, first and foremost, in refuting these claims. They just ignored it. They completely ignored these accusations being leveled at Trump supporters. And secondly, they didn't inform the rank and file Republican Party members, the, the rank and file voters that. This is the propaganda being spread about. It. And if you get out and talk to people in the streets, people don't follow the news. They don't keep up with what the left is saying about them. The left keeps up with what the right is saying about them because they're more technologically savvy. They're more plugged into the news. People in Iowa, Ohio, Alabama, the people who gathered for this rally, many of them were completely clueless that these black officers believe that they're white supremacists. So coming from to again to play devil's advocate, Byrd legitimately believed that this mob that was breaking into the Capitol was here to hang him at first opportunity. He legitimately believed 
that they were going to kill every single congressperson in there because of the propaganda he had been fed. Now, again, that doesn't justify what he did. He should definitely be charged with murder for what he did. Ignorance isn't an excuse, but it's an ignorance fed by our news media, by the Democratic Party, by academia, by Hollywood, by the whole – all of our institutions are feeding this narrative. And so this is what you get. This is Ashley Babbitt is dead because of this false narrative that was fed about Trump and his supporters. And all the while, again, they still continue to project and gaslight and say we're the, the white people are the ones who get away with everything. Yeah, that's why Derek Chauvin is in prison right now, and this guy is gone free. Again, living and hiding, granted, but that's purely due to social pressure. He still has his job, he still has all his benefits, and he's not going to jail anytime soon. Like, all the possible federal entities that could have prosecuted him all say he did nothing wrong. So, Well, but- again, if you look at it from his perspective, there is an argument to be made that he did nothing wrong. Believe in what he believed. And I don't think – obviously, if I'm on the Capitol Police Force – he was a Capitol Police officer, right? He wasn't a was – Yes, secret ca- Capitol Police. Yeah, so if I'm if I'm reviewing the evidence, I'm going to say, look, sorry you believe that, but you're, you're clearly in the wrong. But if you look at it from his perspective, I can see why the Capitol Police would say, OK, well, he followed his training based on the information he had, even though it was false information. Speaking of indoctrination – so this, this is where we move on to the good news for you guys, because you guys do deserve some white pills. So we move on from the black pill to the white pill. Courtesy of Project Veritas. Now, Project Veritas, for those of you guys who don't know, they are a group of investigative journalists founded and led by James O'Keefe, and they specialize in doing deep undercover operations where they get their operatives into far-left organizations, uh, Democratic Party machines and whatnot, campaigns, and they secretly record through, like, little button cameras, like, really well-hidden cameras, like, often uh, confessions of wrongdoing or just really dangerous radical ideas, even admission of crimes. And they just released a video. This is definitely one of the best videos they've done in a long time. A video about a teacher in California, in the Sacramento area, who openly identifies as a member of the far-left domestic terrorist anarcho-communist group, Antifa. Jacob, tell us a little bit more about this good news that we have. Well, Project Veritas went undercover. They apparently <clears throat> groomed somebody to befriend this teacher, and um, they over look like looks like he's in a bar. He's discussing the way he plans to foster the future revolution. I like what you said in our phone call. I feel like I have 180 days, right? Yeah. Was, <laughs> I have 180 days to turn them into revolutionaries. And that's the question. Yeah. Because a lot of them are indifferent. Uh, I think they're distracted by the gadgets and video games. How do you do that? How do you... Meet Gabriel Geit. He's a public school teacher paid for by taxpayer dollars at Intercom High School in Sacramento, California. Geit, who teaches advanced placement government classes, is not shy about his involvement in Antifa's local chapter. He even has an Antifa flag and a poster of Mao Zedong in his classroom. And of course, next to the Antifa flag is also a rainbow flag, because why not? And yeah, Mao Zedong. Yeah, Mao Zedong. Not people forget about Mao Zedong because I've said this before. He, and people forget about Mao Zedong. I, I've always thought about the fact that he escapes the halls of infamy in history. We think a lot about Hitler and Stalin because of the brutality of their crimes. Mao Zedong has the highest confirmed body count of any dictator in human history. Eighty million people killed on his watch. And he is the hero of American Marxists. Oh, yeah. It's not, they're not – most American Marxists aren't Leninists or Stalinists. They're not even Trotskyites. They, they will tell you they honor and support the legacy of Mao Zedong, and they want to bring that form. They want to bring Chinese communism to America because I remember during the Black Lives Matter riots, a lot of the comments on, on Facebook and Twitter was that we need to build a country like China because our prosperity was built off of exploitation and colonialism. China's was built through hard work, and that's the mentality they have. 
not even Che Guevara anymore. Like the, the whole the trend of like Che Guevara, like that's gone. Like no, Ma- no, they're Mao not, Zedong has taken his place. This is this is why there was virtually no pushback on the American left when it looked like the communist regime in Cuba might be close to collapsing. Which, uh, interestingly enough, you don't hear much about that anymore. That was kind of a fleeting moment. Yeah, where did that go? By the way, yeah, it didn't go anywhere. It was, <laughs> it was basically Marco Rubio's little fantasy. But it, it, what, that's why you didn't hear Antifa or American leftists really commenting on that because they don't they don't give a crap about Cuba. They don't give a crap about the Castro regime anymore. That was 1960s stuff. They're more interested in China. China is their is their uh, their idol. Is there a local Antifa or chapter? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, the, the Sacramento organization that is under the banner of Antifa is, is very loosely organized, right? Oh, what was that? Uh, oh, they're organized, but according to Joe Biden, Antifa doesn't exist, right, Jacob? Well, that was that was meant for rank and file Democrats who had been watching CNN, MSNBC, and of course CNN and MSNBC hid the violence of BLM and Antifa. They didn't know. That's why you talk to people about the BLM riots, and they legitimately believe they were mostly peaceful. Unironically, they believe that they believe they were mostly peaceful. They don't know because they're they legitimately don't know anything about the riots. Yeah, that's the ultimate gaslighting. Again, CNN reporters literally standing in front of burning buildings, declaring this is mostly peaceful. That was that was the talking point that everybody got the memo. Like, call this mostly peaceful, no matter what. I remember I talked to when I was working fireworks in Idaho. I talked to this this left wing girl out there, and she was talking about uh, the how a bunch of all these people in Idaho, these local people got their guns out and they were making sure they were patrolling the streets of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho to make sure that there wouldn't be any Antifa showed up. And she's like, these people are delusional. Antifa is just an idea. And I didn't say anything because she's, she's beyond, you know, she's beyond help at that point. But it was funny whenever the Proud Boys and Antifa clashed last in Portland, you had people commenting on Twitter saying that these protesters aren't Antifa. Antifa doesn't exist. It's just an idea. And this one woman said, no, I'm actually part of Antifa. It does exist. We have regular organization, everything. And it, the woman who was saying it's just an idea, she was she didn't really know what it takes. She was like, well, that's feeding into Republican propaganda. She's like, I don't care. Antifa is real. I'm part of it. I know it's real. So it's, it's funny when you get rank and file normie Democrats who don't believe Antifa is real, and they actually meet people who are part of Antifa. They're, it who kinda, don't like the Democrats any more than they like the Republicans, if we're being honest. It, it kind of blows up their narrative that Antifa is just an idea. Um, and, like, we, we have no official, like, member yeah, yeah, list, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so, like, yeah, when, when there is, like, right-wing rallies and stuff, then we, like... We'll create an opposition to that. Yeah. Um, so, and, and Beautiful, he says. Again, this is the, the Project Veritas guy going along with it. They do a great job getting in character. I give them props for that. They, they get into character for these investigative roles. Sacramento, uh, you know, as as the city itself is, is incredibly diverse, but um, we're surrounded so by I'm, a bunch of right-wing rednecks. See, right-wing rednecks. See, the thing is, part of what he's saying, obviously not being derogatory, what he's saying is true in that there are a lot of deep red rural areas in California. Sacramento is based kind of in the central, it's in the middle of the state, like kind of halfway between the eastern border with Nevada and of course the west coast. And yeah, it is surrounded by like rural farmland, especially if you get more to like the northeastern corner of the state. It's very, very red. So in that sense, he is correct. That's what people don't think about when it comes to California. There are some very, very deep red areas in the state. But of course, he dismisses them as rednecks and says, oh, these people, the, the, those farmers who've never been to a city in their life, they're the reason we have to keep doing what we do. Well, it shows the mentality of American Marxists who are part of Antifa. Normally, Marxists would be for the working class. They would want to rally the working class to their side. American Marxists are basically Maoists. They've completely dismissed the working class and the farmers and the as peasants and rednecks. Their goal is to completely eliminate those people and replace them with foreigners. Because he noticed, he noticed he didn't say 
Sacramento is incredibly left-wing. He didn't say Sacramento is incredibly working class. No, he said it's incredibly diverse. That, not, that's the new value. Not working class, not proletariat versus bourgeois. It's diversity. Right. It's not about it, – they're not class-based anymore. They they want – their their leftism has completely abandoned class, and now they're specifically focused on ethnic identity. They're specifically focused on spe- on sexual identity, and they want to create a society that is diverse. It's They don't care about class-based values. And this is where we get to the part of the story that is terrifying that we need to remember. This guy is a teacher, a high school teacher, I believe. Yeah, high school level teacher. And he has students at his disposal, if you will, for every 30 minute period or however long high school class periods are these days. And this is one tactic he uses to indoctrinate them. So like, they, it's, and I do it for extra credit. So they get points for doing it. That encourages them to do it. Because <laughs> like, I, I can't just like, hey, here's some things going. They'll never go, right? Um, and I've, I've had like students show up for like protests, community events, you know, tabling, food distribution, also sorts of things. So- this is a tactic that we actually did see back when, um, after the Parkland school shooting in Florida and the, uh, the anti-gun groups did, like, teachers collectively in school districts would give students, like, a free pass from class and say, like, oh, yeah, you're allowed to skip school for a whole day if you go to an anti-gun protest. Mm-hmm. And, of course, most high school students are like, sweet, I'm going to get out of school. And, of course, a lot of them don't even go to the protest. They skip town and go hang out with their friends. But, like, you know, in this case, students who probably are not me, he's a social studies teacher. So, I mean, you have to be an extra level of stupid to not do well in social studies. It's one of the easiest classes in high school. But he's willing to offer extra credit who doesn't want extra credit right everybody wants extra credit on their assignments if they're they could maybe turn that c into a b and and you know pass the class or whatever there are plenty of other teachers who are like this guy they're not wearing in, in this video he's literally wearing an anti-fascist action tank top you know wife beater as they're called and in his fl- his classroom he has the flags he has a mouse portrait he has the gay flag and the antifa flag but he knows he is not the only teacher who thinks the same way he thinks. And we're going to play this next bit on a slightly increased speed because it's a longer segment. Uh, so we're playing on 1.5 speed. So that's why he sounds a little bit faster than uh, normal. Geip's radical philosophy is prominent in the teaching in his own classroom. Geip goes on to say he's not the only teacher at Intercom High School who shares his radical beliefs. So yeah, because a, a lot of senior parents at this point have backed off, yeah. right? So they're just kind of like, well, you can fend for yourself. You know, I know um, other people in my department who teach like 10th graders who, who have like parent meetings, like some, you know, a student who complained about like a pride flag and something they felt uncomfortable. I've had students, you know, during anonymous surveys at the end of the year comment about the things that I have in my classroom. Like I, I have an Antifa flag on my on my wall um, and a student complained about that and he said it made them feel uncomfortable. And I, I addressed it to everyone because I didn't know who it was. And I was like, well, this is meant to make Baptists feel uncomfortable. So if you feel uncomfortable, I, I don't really know what to tell you. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't be aligning with the, the values that it, this is antithetical too. Yeah, and it's, it's hard, it's hard not to. Make them revolutionaries. They've got TikTok. Got right. Instagram, this well, that's just it. It's like utilize that propaganda. Yeah. Right. Like these are all great tools on how to get. You know, it's like I've, I've met so many people in my life who, when they met me, I was like off the wall. Right. And now they're all Marxists. Right. You know. What I'm saying? He admits use that propaganda. He admits that TikTok and Instagram are propaganda. And it is. You go on TikTok. You go on Instagram. You go on Snapchat. And all the little short stories, like. The, the little, the news stories that the, the thumbnails they will share. I saw another one just, just today on Snapchat's homepage, Jacob. I was going to tell you about this. It said it was an image of an elephant with a MAGA hat in a hospital bed. And it says, here's why so many right-wing talk radio hosts keep dying. Like, and and that, that's the kind of propaganda they are seeing every day, courtesy of these social media outlets. And see, this guy can say that we can use these outlets as propaganda because these outlets are run by Silicon Valley leftists who maybe, not, they're, maybe they're not quite as far left as he is, but they're left enough to where they're going to tolerate his views. They're not going to talk. You know, the right can't organize on these outlets because they'll get shut down and kicked off. Exactly. 
It's like your your political identification changed, and I, so I have a huge political spectrum in my room on the wall. So they take an ideology quiz in, in their unit four, and I put their face. Or they have to give me a picture of themselves. I put it on the wall where they are. He has students take a political ideology quiz, and then he has a big old like political spectrum graph. Puts their picture on the wall. Yeah, like, can you just imagine? I imagine it's like the uh, the four, the two by two square graph of like the uh, authoritarian right, authoritarian left, uh, libertarian left, libertarian right. Can you imagine the one student who ends up scoring like at the absolute top right corner of authoritarian right? Like, at that point, if I were in this dude's class, I would deliberately answer the questions that way just to be the absolute top right of that axis, just to see his reaction and deal with him. But like, mm -hmm. but obviously, most students wouldn't do that. Most students would be, oh, I don't want my face up there in the same box as Hitler. You know, a picture of me drinking water side by side with a pi picture of Hitler drinking water, I'll answer for authoritarian left or libertarian left. Every year, they get further and further left. And, and I've, I've made them pay attention to where my tack marks are. Because I'm like, these ideologies are considered extremes, right? Extreme times breed extreme ideologies, right? There's a reason why Generation Z, these kids, are, are becoming further and further left. No, 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 no. See, this is where he's getting it wrong, and I think deliberately. Generation Z's kids are not getting further and further left because of extreme times. He's hinting at Trump, obviously. Extreme circumstances make them further left. It's because of people like you mm -hmm. yeah. and the social media outlets indoctrinating them that all they've ever known is, oh my god, LGBTQ, XYZ, BBQ is totally cool, right, guy? Then these these influencers with like that, that White House dude. You see the videos, Jacob, of that dude from the White House who was like, my day in, at, in the life of a a day in my life as a White House intern in the Biden administration, and he's this obviously very gay guy with, like, extended fingernails and eyelashes and, oh, like, boy. absurdly gelled hair. And this went viral, and he did, like, a video with Jen Psaki. That is the stuff these people, these kids, are being exposed to. But this guy acts like, oh, no, no, this is totally a natural occurrence. This is happening just because of the times. Yeah, you know what you're doing. Give you like you I think there are more than there used to be. Um, and I, I think that, uh, like, there's three other teachers in my department that I did my credential program with, and they're rad. They're great people. Um, and they're definitely, like, on the same page. Oh, yeah. Communism is rad, didn't you know, guys? You know, anarcho-communism, Marxism, Maoism. That's rad. This this is where we get to the good news, right? We said this is a, a, supposed to be the good news topic. So this actually, this this story broke just this morning. Jacob, what is the fate of Mr. Gabriel Guype? So this went viral, like mega viral, even for Project Veritas, and the school district has fired this guy, so that he is uh, he will be relieved of his job. So this is this is why activism works. This is why people who uh, people on the right who just want to throw up their hands and curl up into the fetal position and claim that oh well you know we've lost the country, the country's in decline, it's over with. Gen Z is the most radical left wing generation ever. We might as well just you know pack it up and move out to the hills or something. No, you. if you get involved, you can make a change. Most people are apolitical. Most people are just normal people who want to have a good life, and they will say what they need to say and write what they need to write on the test to pass the test, to get the degree, to get the job, to get the house, to get the wife, to get the kids. All right, this is all, this is all they care about. They're just, they just want to live a normal life. They don't want to be bothered. If you engage in stuff like this, you can make things happen. This is what Project Veritas does, as opposed to many on the right. They actually engage these people and they expose them for what they are, because most people have no clue that Antifa exists. And I'm saying that even after BLM, they know they they know there's radical protesters on the left, but they don't believe, especially a lot of independents and Democrats, they don't believe that Antifa is real. They don't believe there's actual American Marxists who have infiltrated America's institutions like the teaching profession. And you know, you notice he mentioned a lot of the senior parents, a lot of the like high schooler, high school senior parents. They don't care. 
They just send them off to school. They don't care what they're being taught. They don't engage. They don't go to teacher-parent meetings or anything like that. So some of the 10th graders, their teacher, their parents are involved. But the older kids, they don't care. You can tell them what do whatever you want. And, uh, you know, the parents aren't involved. This is how we get to this situation. And also the administrators, they knew he had those flags on his wall. They knew he had a picture of Mao Zedong. They knew what he was teaching. There's no way that he hid this. And they let it happen. It's not until you receive publicity that they're like, okay, well, we can't let this go public. We've got to fire the guy. But they're not, they're not firing him because of what he believed and taught. They're firing him because he got caught. Exactly, yeah, that they only care when it generates bad publicity for the school district, in which case, in this point, at which point, in this case, they had no choice but to fire him. So the pressure works. The pressure absolutely works. And we're seeing it with uh, the school districts where school board members are increasingly resigning in frustration because more and more parents are protesting critical race theory and transgenderism and stuff. The pressure is working all yeah, across you the gotta country. Yeah, you got to remember a lot of these people who are in these positions of power, they took little feathered light majors in college. They've been pampered their whole life. You criticize them and they break down in tears. The reason why they have so much power is because they've gone unchallenged. Well, for our main topic today, we're going to kind of do an add-on to the Afghanistan main topic that we did two episodes ago because we're finally out. Uh, the, our our occupation of two decades is finally over. It's uh, It's been a painful death for the, over the past month that it took us to finally pull out. It didn't have to be this way. I mean, it could have been a, a quick, you know, a, a very, very quick death because of our president and the leadership of the State Department, the Department of Defense. This ended up being, we ended up losing 13 American soldiers, most of whom were under the age of 25. I think there were like four 20-year-olds who the ended up. 20-year-olds who were just as old as the war itself. Yeah, they were they were, born, they they were, were babies when 9-11 happened. This is all on Biden because, remember, the original withdrawal deal was negotiated in February 2020 between the Trump administration and the Taliban and the Afghan government under then-President Ashraf Ghani. And the withdrawal date was May 1st, 2021. Biden, as we said before, had to make this his own. He had to take control of the withdrawal and make it his own achievement and not give any credit to Trump. So he extended it arbitrarily to the a new withdrawal date of September 11th. So he can say, you know, well, 20 years later, we can turn the page, all the politician platitudes. Then the situation on the ground got worse and he pushed it back to August 31st for the final withdrawal date. But again, that's a violation of four months, four months later than the original withdrawal date, which is technically means that the Ameri America broke their conditions of the agreement first, even before the Taliban did. The Taliban upheld their side of the deal under the Trump deal. And then once America's like, yeah, we're not going to uphold our end of the deal and get out by May 1st, the Taliban said, oh, well, this is a perfect excuse. Let's go ahead and just uh, throw everything out, throw this whole agreement out the window, shred it up, burn it, and let's retake the country. And they did in less than two weeks. So this is all on Biden. The dead Marines in Kabul is all on Biden. And the casket's coming home as he stands there watching. And this also a viral a video going viral of him as he's standing in formation with his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, and other administration officials. He checks his watch as they're getting ready to unload the caskets from the plane and load them up into the hearses. He checks his watch because apparently he has more important places to be. Yeah, the optics of Biden, uh, Biden's behavior through this entire debacle isn't just bizarre. It's mind-blowing. How in the world can a U.S. president be this cold-hearted, this insensitive, just this – just it, – it's very – it's almost like he's just basically telling the American people, I don't care, and I, I don't care that you know that I don't care. I want to get back to my domestic agenda, all right? Enough about this Afghanistan That, that is literally what they're saying. In fact, those are the talking points that, they, that his administration gave Politico. They gave the Politico the talking points that we are going to focus on COVID. We're going to focus on transportation. We're going to focus on the budget. That's what we're focused on. We want to leave Afghanistan behind. And it's, it, you know, it's fine if we had had a clean exit from Afghanistan. That would have been perfectly fine. 
you just leave Afghanistan behind. We could have a ticker tape parade in uh, in New York City on 9-11. Be glad that we're finally out. That would have almost been a Chad move. If he if he ended the war cleanly, he successfully, again, carrying out the agreement sent motion by Trump, but ended America's longest war and then without missing a beat, is like, all right, now back to infrastructure. That would have actually been impressive. Like, yeah, you're going to turn away from the more historic accomplishment in favor of more policy wonk stuff. That would have actually been like, again, I wouldn't agree with it, but I would respect it for him adhering to his priorities for a leftist agenda, which, you know, withdrawing from Afghanistan is not part of his leftist agenda. But again, with such a botched withdrawal, the images we're seeing of Afghan civilians falling from departing American aircraft, Black Hawk helicopters now seized by the Taliban, hanging political enemies, executing their enemies by hanging them from the helicopters and flying around with their bodies hanging from a rope like in Scarface, the dogs, uh, defense contractor dogs that were left behind in the airports in Kabul, all of this is absolute chaos that makes Vietnam look like a cakewalk. And he, again, he's checking his watch, the little things he, he at this, uh, the speech he gave for the dead Marines, he once again, he's done this so often, and this kind of leads directly into the next aspect of the topic. He mentions his son, Bo, you know, Bo Biden, the elder of his two sons, who died of brain cancer in 2015. Who, and Bo did serve. He did serve in, um, I forget which branch of the military, but he did fight in one of the wars. But he didn't die in the war. He didn't die in combat. He died of brain cancer years later. So it's kind of like how a while back we mentioned that uh, Andrew Cuomo, when he was uh, facing a lot of criticism, he kept mentioning, they're like, oh yeah, my my father died. My father Mario mm-hmm. Cuomo died. He died. He died. I understand the pain of all you whose parents and elderly senior citizens died in nursing homes because of my bad COVID policies. Like, and his dad he, didn't die prematurely from COVID, just did, like yeah. Biden's son didn't die prematurely being struck by an ISIS bomb. And I, I think this might be have a little bit to do with aging because I, if you, I know sometimes older people, they do fall back on one particular anecdote or story if they're confronted with a particular issue. But still, the fact, and Shana Chappelle, she's with the mother of Kareem Nakui, who was one of the, it was a 20 year old who was killed. She, whenever Biden met her, she criticized him, blamed him for getting these soldiers killed, and he immediately brought up Bo. And she said, this isn't about your son. This is about my son. And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders, rolled his eyes. And as she, as he was walking off, she he, she was calling after him, still talking to him. He just kind of raised his hand, like waved her off, whatever. And she went on a rant about face, on Facebook and Instagram about it. And get this. Instagram shut down her account. Yep. I mean, how blatantly obvious can you get when so now they said, oh, this was a mistake. But what happened was you had some lower level employee at Instagram who was a partisan Democrat, who was a progressive. How dare she criticize Joe Biden? Who, oh, yeah, who cares he, that her son died? She yeah, this, this, this individual ended up, this is what happens a lot with Silicon Valley. You'll have an individual who works there and they'll shut down a conservative and it's kind of embarrassing. So then Twitter, Instagram will come back and say, oh, no, this was just a mistake. It was it's just error. a glitch in it our was system. Error. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of funny how they, they can't keep their own people under control. But the optics of this are abysmal for Biden. There's no way, there's no other way to explain the fact that these are just complete. And this is something that he's doing no damage control whatsoever. Absolute zero damage control. He's just acting like the entire country agrees with his policies. Rasmussen, their recent poll shows him at the lowest of the low that he's been his entire presidency at 42%. He's relying on the media to keep running cover for him as they have been on literally everything else. But he's facing criticism even from within the media, from a lot of people on CNN and not, not just the usual suspects on Fox News. CNN anchors are criticizing him. I heard like, I heard that actually Don Lemon in. I actually heard that Don Lemon and Fredo Cuomo, excuse me, Chris Cuomo, criticized him for just this horrendous handling of this withdrawal. He's And certainly you can bet he's being very insulated and isolated at the White House that his advisors are around him telling him, oh, yeah, of course, you're doing a great job, Mr. President, is to be yes men and yes women. But the, he obviously does not see the reality of the situation. I mean, he knows everything that's going on as far I assume he's getting the intelligence briefings, but he's 
he, he doesn't care. He literally does not care. He's convinced that this will blow over and the media will go back to praising him blindly when he passes a 50 trillion infrastructure bill. Well, when you consider that the media was able to save him from criticism over Hunter, I mean, the fact that he was able to escape the October bond, bombshell, I can understand why he would be this arrogant because if the media, he probably figures that the media can shield me from that. They can shield me from anything. But he's also, I think it's also something else. I don't think it's just the media that he's relying on. I, th I think he's also relying on Republicans' divided dysfunction. Yep. Because as it currently stands, the Republican Party and the political right in America in general does not have a united position on Afghanistan. The one united position they have is criticized Biden over how the withdrawal went. But then subsequently, the disagreement, and this is very big, is there are some Republicans who are basically, you know, the Lindsey Graham, Dan Crenshaw contingent is saying, we basically have to go back to Afghanistan. We The deaths of our Marines is unacceptable. We need to go back there and stay there. And then, of course, you have the broader base, you know, the Trump base that will say, no, like, this withdrawal was terrible, but it was time to get out. We had, we have to get out. We cannot go back in. We're not going to spend another 20 years uh, being at war. But the base itself doesn't really have much of a voice in mainstream media. They don't really have much of a voice on social media because they've been blocked out of the mainstream sources. And when I say they don't really have a voice, I mean they don't have a voice in the ears of independent voters and Democrats. So independent voters and Democrats, they're not hearing any kind of united right-wing opposition to this. Pretty much the only thing that's uniting Republicans on the, on the issue of Afghanistan is just ways to look for to possibly score political points against Joe Biden. And the problem with that is, okay, so if you're asking what would you do differently, you get 50 different responses from Republicans. And as long as you get 50 different responses, Biden can just steamroll the Republican Party. He can steamroll the media. He can throw up his hand and shrug his shoulders and roll his eyes and look at his watch when he's confronted with widows of this, of or widows and the mothers of the of the service members that he got killed because of his incompetence. And he did get these people killed because of incompetence. His exactly. incompetence. But there he was, could keep he could keep doubling down and insisting that it went smoothly and knowing that certainly, if not the media, Nancy Pelosi and congressional Democrats will also circle the wagons. And Pelosi and others, Schumer, they've come out and said, "Oh yeah, we support the way Biden handled this. This was." very well done. Lloyd Austin coming out declaring that the withdrawal was heroic and historic. So the, the Democratic Party is united on this one way or another. But here's an example. This is somebody who is from the grassroots of the Trump base on a show that is run by Steve Bannon, who was the head of the grassroots MAGA movement. And even he gets Afghanistan dead wrong. This is Congressman and hopefully future senator from the state of Alabama, Mo Brooks, on Steve Bannon's War Room. In my judgment, he should resign. If he does not resign, then Kamala Harris ought to initiate Amendment 25 procedures. And if that doesn't happen, then the United States Congress should be initiating an investigation to explore uh, impeachment. What are the articles? What are the grounds? Well, by way of example, the Constitution makes it an impeachable offense to give aid and comfort to the enemy. I think most people agree that the Taliban and these terrorist entities in Afghanistan are the enemy, and we certainly did give them a lot of military aid with all the equipment tens of billions of dollars of worth of military hardware that we just got through giving our enemy, that this president gave our enemy. So if the, if the Taliban is our enemy, he claims that most people would agree the Taliban is our enemy. No, most people would not agree with that. Most people would, would deny the idea that the Taliban is our enemy. Maybe a slight majority of Republicans, because they're confused, like Mo Brooks apparently is confused about Afghanistan, they might think that the Taliban is our enemy. But I don't even – I kind of – I think there's some cognitive dissonance here. I don't think a lot of Republicans realize that the deal that the Trump administration made last year was not with the Afghan government. The deal was with the Taliban. They met with the Taliban, 
and agreed to a ceasefire and a deal and to withdraw troops from Afghanistan with the Taliban. If the Taliban is our enemy, why were we negotiating with them? Are we negotiating our surrender? If the Taliban is actually our enemy, then you would have to admit that we lost Afghanistan because we surrendered to the Taliban. This is just insane. He doesn't only not only does he accuse the Taliban of being our enemy, but he lumps them in with other terrorist groups. The Taliban is not a terrorist group. The Taliban is a native insurgent force in Afghanistan that's completely separate from ISIS. In fact, the Taliban and ISIS hate each other. There's no there is no camaraderie between ISIS and the Taliban. But when you have Mo Brooks, who is one of the leading MAGA congressmen coming on Steve Bannon's show, and Steve Bannon doesn't even push back against this. He doesn't even criticize him, say, no, that's that's wrong. The Taliban is not our enemy. We negotiated with the Taliban. We didn't surrender to the Taliban. That's the thing. We didn't we didn't lose Afghanistan in the sense that we surrendered. Now the Taliban is making it out like that. But now that we're gone, they're, you know, having mock funerals of the American Empire with a cast with the American flag over and everything like that. It, just for propaganda purposes. But the Taliban was not our it hasn't been our enemy since we defeated the Taliban in two thousand one. They were literally part of the peace agreement that the Trump administration worked out in February 2020. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like who, else, who else are you going to negotiate with in Afghanistan? But see, this is where a lot of the the misunderstanding with Republican voters is coming. You have the average Republican who's sitting on his couch and is watching Fox News. And, of course, Fox News takes the Lindsey Graham, uh, John McCain approach that we should have kept a contingency in Afghanistan and should have kept the Taliban from taking over. So the average voter who doesn't know anything about Afghanistan, and as we're going to show, has been kept in the purposely kept in the dark on Afghanistan, they see the Taliban taking over and they're like, oh, okay, we're surrendering to the terrorists. Why is Biden surrendering to the terrorists? Because they haven't, Fox News has kind of hidden it from their viewers that Trump sat down with the Taliban and negotiated an exit plan with the Taliban, not with our Afghan allies. So how is the grassroots right supposed to capitalize on this Biden blunder when many of the rights intellectuals are acting like the real tragedy is that the Taliban is back in power? So Biden has taken a nosedive, but he looks at this dysfunction in the Republican Party and it's like he looks at Trump voters and he sees how many of them don't even know that Trump negotiated with the Taliban. It's like, these people are a pushover. I can throw my hands up at widows and I can ignore mothers of slain soldiers. I can look at my watch. I can do all this. And the American people will forget in three weeks because I'll get back to the domestic agenda that they really care about. So here is the right take on Biden's Afghanistan withdrawal. Obviously, it was a failure. Obviously, it was a blunder. Biden should have stuck to the original timetable rather than trying to play 9-11 political theater, which was what the whole issue of him delaying it three months was about. He just wanted to he wanted to a big he expected this to be a big political victory for him on 9-11, having recently pulled the troops out because he knew that if he withdrew in May, it wouldn't still be fresh on everyone's minds come 9-11 because he understands the American people have a short attention span. And it would literally not have changed anything about Trump's agreement. He would have literally just followed through on everything that Trump set up. He had to change it and alter it just enough that he could credibly claim, oh, I ultimately signed off on the final withdrawal deal. He should have paid closer attention to how close the Taliban was to taking over, and he should have already had the, enough troops in place to make an emergency evacuation if necessary. If he had followed those three steps, we would have had a clean exit. We would have been able to get all of our people out. We would be able to get all of the necessary, all of the translators and the people who were actually allies, not a bunch of people who just jumped on and gave their babies to American soldiers at the last minute. Without any paperwork. Right. We would have actually gotten the right people out. We could have gotten all of our people out. It had been a clean exit. All of our equipment, all of our weapons and vehicles. Well, I mean, some of that stuff, all of that stuff we were or, leaving or we, behind for or, the Afghan government. Or at least the stuff that we didn't want to leave behind but couldn't take with us. We could have just bombed it. Like Trump said, he would have bombed. He would have destroyed, like demolished the bases and destroyed the equipment. Again, like they did in Vietnam. So they, they, at least don't fall into enemy hands. Mm, I disagree with that. I don't think Trump would have done that because at the time, if we, if Trump had been in office rather than Biden, we would have made a clean exit without the Taliban being in power. 
And it would have been assumed that if we left this stuff behind, the Afghan government might be able to fight off the Taliban. So my, my view is that all of this stuff would eventually fall into the Taliban hands anyway. The difference, though, is under a Trump administration or under a Biden administration that had followed the Trump plan, all of this stuff would have still been in the Afghan government's hands. And it would have been the Taliban taking it away from the Afghan government after our boots were already off the ground. So the American people wouldn't be able to say, well, look, we gave this over to the Taliban. No, we gave this over to our allies. They screwed up. We did the best we could. It would be on them. But since we're finally out, let's recap uh, what we were actually doing all those years after we defeated the Taliban and installed a puppet government. The Afghanistan papers were published by the Washington Post after two FOIA lawsuits to obtain interviews by the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SEGAR. I wonder how many Americans before this was published actually had ever heard, even knew, that we had a Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. I mean, that, that sounds – how can you get more imperial sounding than that? That sounds like a special czar overseeing our imperial colony in Afghanistan. A regional governor, yeah. Like, oh. So this was taken from 400 interviews. A lot of people have compared this to the, uh, the Pentagon Papers dealing with Vietnam. But the difference is the Pentagon Papers were classified and they were hacked. These were public. This was public information that anyone could have accessed at any time. Now, the government – it dragged its feet. The Washington Post had to file two FOIA lawsuits in order to get these uh, these interviews. And, uh, Which is a process in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. So it took them a little bit. Uh, the government tried to stop it as best they could, but this was all public information. Anybody, any individual, any American could access this. In the age of technology and the internet that we have today, and yet it took all this time to finally reveal this stuff. So it came about because during the 2016 election, Michael Flynn was campaigning for Trump, and it came to the – apparently the Washington Post was trying to dig up dirt on Michael Flynn. It came to their uh, their awareness that he had done an interview by um, – it, with this, uh, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction's office on Afghanistan. And in the interview, he had criticized the, the operation in Afghanistan. He criticized the effort. He claimed that it was uh, basically a waste of time and money and resources. And they thought, well, wait a minute. He hasn't exactly said this publicly. I wonder how many other officials and military brass have had similar interviews. And it turns out there were 400 of these interviews. And in each – all of these interviews, all of these generals, these uh, these colonels, all these uh, – the military brass, the political leaders, the picture they paint of Afghanistan is very, very different from the picture that they paint when they're brought before Congress or when they're given interviews to the public. The, uh, the interviewees paint the military brass as either deluded or intentionally misleading the American people about the true cost of the war, the objectives, and the possibility of victory. When the Afghanistan papers were published in December 2019, approximately 43,000 Afghan civilians had been killed, 45,000 Afghan military personnel, 2,300 U.S. military personnel, 3,814 U.S. contractors, and 1,114 coalition troops. So a pretty hefty price to pay for absolutely nothing. Those numbers didn't really change much in 2020 because there weren't many casualties in 2020. So yeah. here's uh, here's a brief – the Washington Post did a, uh, a mini documentary on the, uh, the, the Afghanistan papers. There's a clear pattern that what was said in private in these interviews contrasted so greatly with what U.S. officials – presidents, members of Congress, military commanders, what they had been saying in public over 18 years. Usually the talking points were all pretty similar. They would say the wars, it's a tough place. Conditions that are very trying. It was a tough year. Afghanistan, there's still fighting going on. Increase in Taliban violence. A higher level of violence. But we're making progress. 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 Significant progress. You know, we're going in the right direction. We are on the right road. In the right direction. Our strategy is sound. I think it's important to understand that we do have a strategy that's quite broad. Our strategy 
is succeeding. And they would give a very detailed case for why the American people should keep having to fight this war halfway around the world. But when you read these interviews, people would say that this was a lot of spin and lies to some extent. And after 03-04, once we're fully engaged in both wars, I can't remember us ever saying, should we be there? Are we being useful? Are we succeeding? There were people in the White House who were giving interviews saying very explicitly that statistics or figures about the war that were indicators of who was winning and losing or how things were going were being twisted around or manipulated or almost made up. As intelligence makes its way up higher, it gets consolidated and it gets really, really watered down. One of the most sobering things to read for me was just how many people involved in the war were very blunt and candid that the strategy, the war strategy under Obama and Bush and Trump, they all said it was worthless. These, in these interviews, the, the people interviewed, now the reason why they did the interviews is because this Office of the Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction wanted to get their candid thoughts. And the purpose of this is they're planning on compiling these interviews together and presenting them to reports to Congress, presenting them in reports to the public. And they did to some extent, but they watered down a lot of the more damning stuff. And so what the Afghanistan papers did through the Washington Post is they gave the raw interviews in there. They gave some of the more raw quotes to the public that the public wasn't made aware of beforehand. So in these interviews, the people, these folks expressed frustration that military and political leaders didn't understand the Taliban or their motives for fighting. And that was inexcusable. We, we had experts in academia that could have filled them in on this stuff. We had military experts at think tanks that could have filled them in on this stuff and historians. Uh, but because of their hubris, they didn't seek them out. And uh, they also expressed frustration that the U.S. couldn't establish metrics for success. Like, what, what does victory mean? If this is 2008, 2009, where do we go? We already defeated the Taliban. Uh, we already, you know, al-Qaeda isn't an issue in Afghanistan anymore. Now they're spread out throughout the world. Why are we here? We overthrew Saddam Hussein over in Iraq. Yeah, like at that point, it was just kind of the only outstanding goal was to find bin Laden at that point. Mm -hmm. They believed erroneously that the Taliban would crack under significant bombing operations. They also um, – one, one of the things that this, this resulted in was the U.S. missing an opportunity to negotiate with the Taliban when the Taliban was weak. Whereas if they had had it in their mind that the Taliban is probably going to come back into power after we're gone, we need to negotiate an exit plan with the Taliban. And if we do that, then the Taliban might be willing to work with some of these more liberal elements in Afghanistan. But they didn't do that uh, because they just kind of pushed on the back burner and they still had it in the back of their mind that they were going to defeat the Taliban, whatever that meant. But they didn't even know what that meant. They expressed belief that aid doesn't win hearts and minds. Uh, this is kind of uh, – this is this is another bleeding over from liberals' domestic policy into foreign policy. If you talk to liberals about areas that are deeply red and poor like Appalachia, they will typically well, – especially liberal politicians, democratic politicians, their belief is that if you offer health care to these people, then they'll come around to the democratic party. Health care, social security, all kinds of benefits. Yeah, all, all kind of welfare. If you offer welfare to these poor people, they will eventually come around to the democratic party. They'll win hearts and yes, you'll win hearts and minds. They'll forget about the fact that they're pro-life. They'll forget about the fact that they're nationalist. They'll put all their social policies on hold. Pro-Second Amendment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll forget about all that stuff if you just put food in their belly 
and give them good retirement, give them health care, because material possessions are all that matter to these people. They think that that's what matters to everyone else, but that didn't work in Afghanistan. This mistake – instead, it bred corruption. So they, they if it would have helped if we did a few targeted programs maybe here and there, but instead we spent billions and billions on reconstruction projects in Afghanistan thinking that this was going to win the Afghans over to our liberal democracy. But all it did was just pad the pockets of corrupt Afghan officials, which in turn fueled the Taliban because people saw the United States as – you know, given money to corrupt warlords, and they're like, okay, I'd rather have the Taliban than this. These interviewees expressed exasperation with training the Afghans. Ghost soldiers, fraud, ethnic tensions, rampant drug use, and low morale certainly plagued these forces, undercutting the U.S. plan to withdraw, the Washington Post writes. They, so what ended up happening was the Afghans were as likely to be won over by the Taliban after receiving training by the U.S. as they were to stay and fight the Taliban due to their different ethnicities in the army. And this is what happens when you have a multiracial, multiethnic country. You know, kind of sound familiar. We start to have a breakdown of society. You can't have a cohesive military if you have multiple ethnicities with multiple ideologies and loyalties. It's kind of what we're seeing in our own military. And like I said, you can't fight. You can't project power abroad when you've got a cold civil war brewing at home over ethnic tensions. These interviewees expressed the belief that the patron-client relation we had with Karzai and Ghani, the two Afghan puppet presidents that we installed, weren't working because these two presidents, they had their own constituencies that they had to – uh, had to satisfy. They had uh, – you got to remember Afghanistan is a tribal country. you got multiple tribes, ethnicities, languages, and you're not just going to go install someone and drop a bunch of aid and have the country flock to their side. They expressed concern over the infighting and disconnect between troops on the ground and the brass. The troops on the ground saw that it wasn't working, and if they tried to send a message up you know, through the chain of command say, hey, this isn't working. We need to get out. They could be demoted. They could, you know, they could end up facing repercussions be because charged. Yeah, right. So there wasn't, and there was this bred frustration on the ground with this, the troops are actually having to, you know, put themselves through this and put their lives at risk. A great movie to watch is a Netflix movie called War Machine. It stars Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt plays a fictional character based loosely off the character of General McChrystal. And it shows how one general after another just fails because it's an unwinnable war, and it really sh puts Obama in a really bad light. It shows the reality of how disconnected the politicians and the military brass were from the soldiers on the ground having to do the dirty work and put their lives at risk. They, this is infuriating. They expressed absolutely no concern at the diminishing American civilian interest in the war. Americans were plugged into Afghanistan until we invaded Iraq. That was less than two years. That was a grand total of about 17, 18 months from the time that we invaded Afghanistan to the, to the time that we put that on the back burner and invaded Iraq. From that moment on, the spring of 2003 until last month, Americans paid virtually no attention to Afghanistan. American civilians, it was the furthest from their minds. There was one interview, quote, taken in 2006. They were interviewing soldiers in Afghanistan, and they asked them, you know, uh, they were talking about them being at war. And they said, well, we're at war. The rest of America is at the mall. Ah, and, that that sums it up right there as far as I'm concerned. Yep, and but these generals and the people in, interviewed by this SEGAR uh, uh, office, they showed no interest in the fact that American civilians did not care about the war. And here's why. This war was possible because of the absence of a military draft, the use of contractors to support the war. So uh, Blackwater did a lot of the fighting rather than our military. The lack of an anti-war movement at home. Deficit. How, you, how can you have an anti-war movement when the average American doesn't know what's going on in Afghanistan? They're that, being purposely kept in the dark. This isn't Vietnam. Exactly. This is a completely different situation. I would also think certainly contributing to that is the fact that there's no clear enemy here. It's not a war against another nation like a war mm -hmm. against North Vietnam, a war against North Korea, against Nazi Germany or Japan or what have you. This was – we were never at war with Afghanistan. It was just we were at war 
in Afghanistan mm-hmm. against this kind of vague boogeyman enemy. Another reason is deficit financing rather than a war tax. And also an Afghan population that bore the brunt of the casualties. So we would put contractors uh, at in the field and we would have them oversee the Afghans who would do our dirty work and our fighting force. So that's why you have 45,000 dead Afghans who did fight our fighting force and only 2,300 dead Americans. So by foreclosing criticism at home, senior political and military leaders lost a powerful mechanism for self-correction. They were able to keep the military – this is this served the military-industrial complex. All these contractors kept being able to make – Million, hundreds of millions, billions and billions of dollars, pad their pockets. You had like uh, like Alston Lloyd. He had a, got the revolving door between what was it? Uh, um, which uh, military contract? Raytheon. Raytheon. Yeah, he goes serves in the military. Um, uh, Lloyd Alston was over the Iraq operations under Obama. He leaves the military after Obama leaves office. He goes and works as a top exec at Raytheon. He comes right back and serves as Secretary of Defense. And this is the this is the vision of the military. That most conservatives prefer to not believe exists. They want to look at the military like their parents looked at the military during World War II. And the heroes Korea. who came back from a valiant war and saved the world, basically. They don't yeah. want they they. It's hard for them to conceptualize the military as this bloated, left wing, progressive, sometimes anti American bureaucracy that pads its pockets at the expense of taxpayers and sheds American blood and doesn't bat an eye about it and does not come back with results. So all of this talk about our military is over there fighting over – and this was what you'd hear during Iraq and the early years of Afghanistan. Well, pray for the troops. They're over there fighting in the Middle East so they don't come over here and kill us over here. Fighting for our freedoms around the world. Freedoms. Yeah. A few excerpts that I was shocked at. I mean there was – Doug Lute, General Lute, who was the Afghan war czar in the White House for two administrations, Bush and Obama. So this guy was, from the White House perspective, overseeing the war. And he's saying things like, you know, we had no idea what we were doing. He said, I bumped into an even more fundamental lack of knowledge. We were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. General Dan McNeil, who was a two-time military commander there, I tried to get someone to define for me what winning meant even before I went over, and nobody could. This is the commanding officer two times of, of the military in Afghanistan. To me, it's pretty astounding. These are the people in charge of the war, essentially saying it was a disaster, and they knew it. But I don't see any of these comments in your lessons learned reports. Why, why didn't you include those? And, and, and that is sort of the limitation of where we go. See, as an inspector general, I don't do policy. What all you quoted were people talking about a bad policy. So, why did your staff interview all these people I just quoted if, if they aren't because going to be used? At, at, Oh, they may well be used. But I they mean, weren't. What, None of those people. N- not up to now, but. That's the whole fundamental reason questioning why the well, United States is there. How could you let that drop? Well, well, we didn't let it drop. I mean, the stuff is available. We're still producing these reports. We just so. sued you twice to get our hands on it. I, I don't know if quoting General Lute saying that we screwed up or we didn't have the plan would be any more useful than the audits and investigations and other reports that we have, which make the same point. You don't think Everything. that would be more useful than the White House war czar who admitted they had no idea what we were doing in Afghanistan, it, it, and you don't think that would be useful it, to tell that to the public? In my humble opinion, no. You imagine you got the you inspector general of this, of this agency and saying that it wouldn't be useful to tell the American public 
that what what we're doing in Afghanistan is wasteful. What we're doing in Afghanistan, all these generals, they believe that we're not winning, that we're losing the war. That wouldn't be useful to, in my humble opinion, that wouldn't be useful to let the American people know what's going on. Well, technically, he's right in that it, it wouldn't be useful because it wouldn't be useful to their agenda. It yes. wouldn't be useful to what they're trying to do, obviously. They're not trying to, to win a war. They're trying to, you know, line the pockets of their defense contractor buddies and, you know, enrich themselves. It's so, I got to say, it's just so refreshing to hear of all things the Washington Post actually doing some real investigative journalism for once the guy shouting we had to sue you twice to get these documents like hey, props for a very rare act of actual journalism on your guys's part ProPublica did a similar uh, write-up in 2015 and this is of course before the the full waste was known but they point out that there were 17 billion that were wasted in afghanistan up by 2015 and just to show you a little bit of what we were spending money on 8 billion on fighting the drug trade how about we spend eight billion fighting the drug trade in America? We haven't. This is why. This is why we have. Oh, that's like the international drug trade. It's the drug trade uh, just in Afghanistan, only oh, in boy. Afghanistan. This is why hundreds of thousands of Americans are dying from opioid overdose in America. This How is why yeah. middle America is being hollowed out through deaths of despair and opioid overdose. Yeah, literally how much of that $8 billion could have built a wall that would really stop the flow, help stop the flow of drugs in this country? Well, this is $8 billion. I mean, the, the wall was going to be completed with $20 million. Just a tiny, tiny fraction of that. This is, uh, you know, just what is that? Less than, um, forget that. I don't, my math is terrible. Just a tiny, tiny fraction of that. Two billion. This was two, get this, two billion spent on roads the Afghans likely can't maintain. How many roads could have been built in America with two billion dollars? Seven, sir. The libertarians will love to hear that we built roads in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> One billion spent on broad, undefined justice initiatives. And this is, these are your left wing NGOs who are going over there trying to bring gay rights to Afghanistan, trying to bring women's rights to Afghanistan. We spent a billion dollars on that stuff. 936 million on underused. Aircraft for counter narcotics and counterterrorism, 661 million for armored vehicles Afghans struggle to maintain, 488 million on mineral extraction programs Afghans can't even keep up, 486 millions on million on planes that couldn't be flown, 470 million on Afghan local police. And of course, that's now all, all that equipment is now in the Taliban. Taliban, yeah. 400 million on governance programs that fell short of goals, 335 million on underused power plants. 303 million on an un, unfinished dam meant to provide electricity, 200 million on literacy training that was never evaluated. And just the list goes on and on. This is 17 billion just by 2015. Of course, we just continued to spend money on that. And uh, just to, just in closing, we're running out of time, but I'm just going to go through a few things here and uh, just to show you just how ridiculous this war was while Americans were asleep. Americans were sleeping on this. Americans had no idea any of this was going on. And if you listen to the Inspector General in that last clip we pay, we played, if you go back and listen, remember he said well, we had this stuff published. It was out there. It was available. We didn't hide any of this stuff. So it's like the government publishes these reports that are damning to the Afghan war effort. But it's like, well, hey, the American people could have looked it up if they wanted to. We but had because, the information right. out there. But how is the average American supposed to know about any of these interviews? Well, even then, it's buried in thousand-page-long documents written in legalese, just like bills mm -hmm. in Congress. Like, nobody's going to bother to read the whole infrastructure bill. No one reads these things. So, And they know that. They know no average American you know, diner owner is going to read thousand-page reports written about, you know, and, and spec op, you know, operations bureau. Like, and they're not going to read through that stuff. They and, know that. And the, and the Washington Post didn't even know about it until the election in 2016 when it came to their attention that Michael Flynn had been one of the people interviewed, which apparently was just because – they were probably just because they were trying to dig up dirt on Michael Flynn, and they just happened by accident to come across this. Otherwise, the Washington Post would have probably never discovered any of these interviews. 
So just another example, the State Department spent – this was one of the hearts and minds initiatives that the USAID was uh, was trying to implement. The State Department spent $6.5 million on telecommunication towers despite several senior State Department, DOD, and Afghan officials warning that Afghan telecom companies wouldn't connect to the system and fuel calls for the generators were too high. The towers went unused. 2009, State Department decided it would sink $106 million into refurbishing a compound in Mazar-e-Sharif, that's a region in Afghanistan – to be a consulate, despite State Department insiders' warnings that it wasn't safe enough. So that's another $106 million that was just wasted. Wasted. In 2011, a task force of financial gurus brainstormed business projects for the military. They had a bright idea. Al- alternate fuels. Because that's what we need. We need to. We need alternate fuels in yeah. Afghanistan. Afghan wants to, Afghanistan wants to go green. Obviously, just send AOC over there as, as the ambassador wearing a burqa, and she'll explain the, you know, <laughs> the, the, the values of the Green New Deal. Right. A few years earlier, a geological survey had found that the northern part of the country was blessed with natural gas reserves. Uh, at the time, natural gas was okay. Now even natural gas isn't okay. Commercializing that resource would be a would be a boon for Afghanistan. The task force figured, particularly since the country relies on imported gasoline it can barely afford. It seemed like a good idea on paper, but as an expert after ex- as ex- expert after expert noted, Afghanistan is not the U.S. It's not even Pakistan. Getting the gas out of the ground and moved around the country would be a feat. There is no distribution system in Afghanistan for that kind of compressed gas, and building one in a war-torn country that has trouble keeping the lights on with generators was an expensive, if not laughable, notion. But American contractors are like that's fine. We'll just they're ringing their they're rubbing their hands. You can just see them. Hey, that's all right. We'll go over there and build roads. But we'll need you know we'll we'll need of course we'll need a contra- nice lucrative contract with the government. We'll go build r- roads so you can get that natural gas to uh, to people's homes. Here's another problem. The task force sunk $43 million into a proof-of-concept gas station anyway. There was another key problem. There's no customers. The average Afghan would have to shell out more than an entire year's worth of salary to convert their cars to run on compressed natural gas. It costs about $700, and most Afghans bring home $690 a year. This is clearly <laughs> why the Afghans need to start buying Teslas, obviously. So get this. The only people who use the station— were the 120 Afghans that the U.S. paid to convert their cars? That so is true. corrupt Stonks, officials, guys. Stonks. <laughs> corrupt officials who had access to the U.S. military, all 120 of them managed to convert their cars to use this gas station that we built, that we sunk millions of dollars in. And the list, we're going to link this in the description. The list goes on and on and on. You can read all the waste that was sunk into this. But the reason why the American people are getting screwed like this. The reason why the American people are seeing their loved ones get killed in Afghanistan, they're seeing us come home with our tail between our legs, they're seeing the American president not give a hoot about the Americans who were killed and care more about his son Bo and bring Bo up to the mothers of the sons that are killed in Afghanistan. The reason why you're seeing the American empire not just in decline but implode overnight is because our bureaucracies who we fund with our tax dollars do not have the American people's best interests at heart. They care about themselves. They care about their uh, they care about their own the money that they can make working as government contractors or working in the government. But beyond that, they're ideological, and their ideology does not match the ideology of the common taxpayer. Again, this goes back to a previous reference we made to the Harry the Truman Doctrine. Under Harry Truman, foreign policy was divorced from politics. Foreign policy became a bipartisan career bureaucratic affair. You had the same foreign policy under Republican administrations and Democratic administrations. Each new administration was expected to implement that foreign policy, and the American people were not expected to care. 
This is why the first impeachment of Donald Trump happened. Alexander Vindman, when he was asked Sasha, under oath, Sasha Vindman by his birthday, Alexander Sasha Vindman, when he was asked about the reason for divulging this information and becoming a whistleblower, he said Donald Trump was messing up our foreign policy. The interagency consensus yes. is the term he used. I, I was defending the interagency consensus on how to fight wars, and again, because I'm pretty. Last I checked, yeah, yeah, it's not the president or those elected by the people who decide foreign policy. Obviously, it's these shadowy bureaucrats at the CIA. FBI, DOJ, the, the alphabet soup agencies, they're the ones who determine our foreign policy, clearly. And this ends when the Republican Party gets its act together, when the nationalist, non-interventionist wing of the Republican Party that supported Trump's foreign policy consolidates its power, educates morons like Mo Brooks, which Mo, Mo Brooks is great on everything except on immigration Afghanistan. Trait. He is a yeah, solid— Immigration, he, he's solid. But he, on he this was one issue, of the few who was like Trump before Trump in some ways. But, but on, on this issue, and that based on that comment he gave to Steve Bannon, he's an absolute moron when it comes to this. If he thinks that—after everything we've seen, if he thinks that the Taliban is our enemy, you can't deal with somebody. You can't have a, a populist a constituency that is that ignorant electing people— carrying out a policy, fighting an enemy that's not actually our enemy. And so until the Republican Party consolidates a nationalist foreign policy that looks out after America's interests and focuses on America and doesn't try to spread our values abroad, you're not going to see any change. That's the only way that this is going to change. You have to go back to a pre-World War II isolationist approach to foreign policy if you actually want America's foreign policy to serve the interests of the American people and you don't want 13 Americans coming home in body bags being blown up in a country they shouldn't even be in in the first place. Exactly. That is just – that's one of the many reasons why this war is so tragic, that not only was it arguably fought for nothing, but that American, American marines, American sailors, American soldiers, American airmen have died – for nothing and they didn't need to none of this needed to happen the way it happened it could have ended peacefully again it ultimately would have been a loss by definition if the taliban still came back to power after the fact but it didn't have to be an absolute chaotic mess like it was and that is entirely on joe biden who knows he just like these agencies they know they can keep getting away with this stuff as long as the population remains asleep that is all the time that we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, as always. Be sure to follow us at our website, righttakepodcast.com, and all the podcast platforms and social media sites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. We have added a new addition to our social media portfolio. We have joined the platform Getter, the pro-free speech First Amendment alternative to Twitter. We are on Getter at The Right Take, so be sure to download the app and follow us there on Getter. And of course, if you are feeling so generous, be sure to support what we do here at The Right Take every week at righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.